So I think having this moment, especially in your late thirties, where there's sort of all of this, it felt like I was on a deadline, having this moment of realizing like my life was not something that I was just passing the time with until my real life started. My real life being like a partnership or a child. Like I had intentionally, whether I'd been fully aware of it or not, like constructed the exact life I wanted. Hi, I'm Lara Dolch, and you're listening to She Knows the Way, a show about deciding what's next when doing what's expected no longer feels right. She Knows the Way is on a winter break from production, so we've pulled a few listener favorites out of the archives for you. Episodes from the years when the show was called Women on the Rise and featured interviews about the connection between self-care and success. Whatever you might think about Valentine's Day, sweet little winter holiday when we express our love for one another, or made-up Hallmark holiday, or maybe both, this is the week, and I couldn't think of a better time to revisit my conversation with Glennis McNichol, author of the memoir No One Tells You This, about what happens when you turn 40 and your life doesn't look like it's supposed to look, at least not according to society. This episode was originally released in January of 2020. If you, like me, are building your life as a single, child-free lady, this conversation is especially for you. And if you're coupled, that's cool too. You'll still love Glennis's humor and her advice for living your best life from a place of confidence instead of fear, no matter your relationship status. Sending you my love on this day after Valentine's Day. Enjoy my chat with Glennis. As I was saying before we started recording, my primary interest in reaching out to you was because your book, No One Tells You This, really spoke to me as really the first time that I ever seen a woman who is on a similar life path, meaning, you know, single, child free, and by choice, you know, tell her story. So I guess I'll just sort of start there. And I'm sure you've talked ad nauseum about your book. (laughs) But just to give listeners a little bit of context who aren't familiar with it, can you talk a little bit about why you chose to write it? So now I have to think back (laughs) (laughs) because I think this conversation is finally being mainstreamed. And I think I was just a little bit ahead of the curve, but I, as a person who um, was so growing up, my parents didn't travel. We, we had a very, um, constricted life of a very insular family. And I didn't have a lot of examples of ways to be in the world outside of my reading. When I was approaching 40 and was single, did not have any children, was sort of increasingly finding myself outside of all of the familiar narratives we have about women, which are essentially two narratives, one being marriage and the other being motherhood, it was, it was increasingly stressful. And I really um, found myself, I think I write in the book, like just dreading the birthday in ways that I made me frustrated and irritated. I didn't want to be, I don't know if you remember the Kathy cartoon, but yes, for that sure. panicky late 30 something woman who's panicking about <laughs> not being married and not having kids or whatever it was. And then I turned 40 And the reality of it was so much better. 
and so much more exhilarating than anybody or any story. My story, I mean like movie, book, play, radio show, <laughs> television show. All of um, the things. Everything had led me to believe. And it was also so much more difficult in ways that I had not been prepared for. And I was incredibly resentful of both those things that I hadn't been prepared for all the ways in which I would feel powerful and in charge of my life and just so thoroughly fulfilled and enjoying my life. And I was also very resentful and angry that I hadn't been prepared for the ways in which it would be difficult in terms of how many people would be leaning on you or the responsibilities or all the other complicated things that all women deal with as they, as they get older. And so I spent an entire year complaining about it. <laughs> in every single, I think I was a contributing editor at L at the time, but I just remember like, no matter what I was writing about, literally no matter what it was, I could work in <laughs> my frustration over the absence of female narratives. It could be like, describe your lunch. And I'd be like, well, <laughs> I don't know if everyone reading this is aware. Um, and so by the end of the year, I really was sort of had what I joke was the Oprah aha moment of being like, you are the writer. The year had, uh, involved a lot of sort of dramatic ups and downs that I felt lent themselves to that. I could see a narrative arc in them and the 40th year sort of presented some understandable parameters. And so I wrote a proposal and I was very fortunate to find an editor who thought it was a good idea. And here you are. Yeah. And here I, we are. <laughs> no, I mean, I love that. And I, when I describe the book to people, cause I, it was actually recommended to me by a married friend of mine, but she, mm -hmm. you know, like me had spent many years living in New York city and said that she, and she got married, you know, late ish, you know, depending on how you define that. Um, and said that it really resonated with her as well. And she's like, you have to read this book. And so the nice thing I will say was when we sold it, this all seems not surprising in 2019, but I sold it in this in June of 2016 because mm. the election hadn't happened yet. And um, which now seems 1 million years ago. Yes. But <laughs> when we sold it, I think my editor had just come on to Simon and Schuster and was really excited. And she was 40 and she wasn't married and she didn't have kids. And the publishing house, I think, got behind it. They were like, well, I guess there's enough single 40 year old women out there that some people will buy this book. Like, I really think <laughs> oh my God. they were really just, and they've been great. But I really think at that time it was very much like, eh, all right. But I knew having written on this subject, actually written on the subject, not just like shoehorning it in randomly, that the responses I was getting were at least 50% from married women and often times from men that I had, in, in what I was struggling with, I had, which I think is often the case when we really tap into sort of very personal experiences is that you're really simultaneously tapping into some pretty universal um, experiences. And so I knew going in that the audience would be wider. So it doesn't surprise me to hear that a married friend gave it to you. I also hear a lot from women under 30, mm. who I think my 20s are a blur of irresponsible behavior. <laughs> but I <laughs> yes. think 20-year-olds now are under so much pressure and are so inundated with other versions of the way people are living that they're... I, I find anyway, the ones I hear from are relieved to, to see another path 
sort of laid out another example, which was really what I was struggling with was the lack of examples. And right. so many people have said to me, not so many, but I definitely hear consistently from a very small portion of the readership who like to tell me that, am I aware I'm not the first woman who didn't get married and doesn't have a child? <laughs> and also everybody has an aunt who's really happy. And I'm like, I am an aunt and yes, I am aware. But then I, if it's at a reading or whatever, I always say like, please point out to me the movie version of this, the yeah. novel, the anything. Cause that's really what I was struggling with was like, I know where there's many women who've lived like this. I think certainly my generation is getting a very new and exciting version of it, which hopefully is not short lived, but why aren't we seeing this reflected back to us? That's a very long winded answer, but no, totally. I no, it's totally, I think that's right. I mean, it's like, okay, that's fine. Yes. We all know women who live this way, but mm -hmm. no one's talking about it publicly in a larger way. And so those, you know, women who are like growing up, for example, in, I don't know, like places, I was going to say small towns, but anywhere where that doesn't happen very often, don't have that as an example, like they mm -hmm. don't see that happening. And so, yeah, why would they think that it's a valid path? Right. You know, and you know, what you were saying about sort of you know, waking up on your, well, maybe it wasn't this instantaneous, but turning 40 and, you know, not being prepared for how powerful you felt and how wonderful a lot of things were. And then, you know, on the flip side, how hard things were. But it reminds me of this feeling that I sometimes have and have talked to other women about where you can sit there and you're thinking, I'm really happy, but I yeah. feel like I shouldn't be. <laughs> yes. Does that resonate with you at all? Oh, it's so much. And I think it, Again, I'm so glad I wrote the book when I did. I think it was really a struggle to get perspective because it was so immediately in the aftermath of so much of what I was writing about. But at the same time, had I waited five years, I don't know that I would have taken the experience as seriously as it deserves to be taken because now it seems funny to think that you'd wake up on your 40th birthday and feel completely different. But it really leading up to it, it really felt like a cliff, like it, or like, I think I say in the book, like a guillotine, like I was really prepared for it to be so terrible. Like, like now you're 40 and you have to tell people you're 40 and there's no, like no hope from beyond. So I just remember waking, literally waking up that morning and being like, I feel fucking fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I've been released from prison. Like, yeah. I just like skipping around and it was, and of course reality eventually sets in with all of the complicating factors of life. But what angered me that year was how good I did feel and how I kept second guessing it because there was nothing out there to suggest I should feel good. Yes, exactly. It was like you're being gas. I mean, again, this is now a mainstream conversation, but the, I think that first glimpse of how badly women have been gaslit for the entirety of the human history. <laughs> the yeah. human history, uh, was, it was just this moment of being like, holy shit, this is all a lie. <laughs> and thinking like, that's amazing. But also I can't believe how much time I've wasted in my life subscribing to this belief system that is just an absolute falsehood. Yeah. 
Yeah. Then I'd get angry. No, totally. I, you know, I always tell women, I, someone the other day said that they had just turned 40 and I said, welcome. Yeah. (laughs) Because, you know, it is, it's, it's such an amazing decade for a lot of people. And I just, you know, yeah, so much more to say about that. But I, I actually, you did say something in your book that I thought was especially, well, there are lots of things, but this, you know, you said, quote, my life precisely as it was the product of good and bad decisions began to come into focus for me. I Mm -hmm. could see it for the first time as something. I'd chosen. Can you talk to me about that? This idea of like realizing that you actually had chosen this path. Mm -hmm. I think women are so conditioned to think so much about how we're taught to value ourselves are things that are out of our control. We women are valued for their beauty, which is largely genetics. And women are valued for whether a man chooses them, which again, reduces our agency so significantly. There's a lot of like waiting. Women are like waiting, lady in waiting. I mean, just think like made it like all of this stuff. It's all in our language. And if you walk into a magazine store and you see all this stuff, like we're constantly being told, A, we're not good enough. That's sort of not a revelatory realization, but just this sense of like, we're always waiting for something to happen to us. And women who go out and get it for themselves for such a long time were considered, I mean, we are seeing the language once again in the election, but like pushy, aggressive, angry, you know, all these things that we're supposed to be apologetic for. And so I think having this moment, especially in your late thirties, where there's sort of all of this, it felt like I was on a deadline, having this moment of realizing like my life was not something that I was just passing the time with until my real life started, my real life being like a partnership or a child. Like I had intentionally, whether I'd been fully aware of it or not, like constructed the exact life I wanted. And I wasn't waiting for anything. Like I had gone out and gotten all the things I wanted and I actually wanted them. Like it wasn't an accident. I did want the life I had. And it's so rare that we see any or were given any sense of women being satisfied with their own lives outside of marriage or babies. Those are the only two ways women can be satisfied. And God help you once you get one of those two things. And there's a whole other industry to tell you how you're screwing it up. So, but that was a real moment for me of just realizing like, oh, I actually, this is, I do have the life I want. I'm not waiting for something else to happen to me. This, that default thinking is actually not applicable to me. How have things sort of changed? Like, have you noticed since you came to that realization? Because I, I had a similar, you know, realization with the help of my sister who once said to me, Laura, it doesn't sound like you want kids. It sounds like you want a dog. <laughs> I was like, okay. And then ever since she said that, I was like, oh my God, that's it. Yes, right. thank you. But has, has anything changed about the way that you make decisions or I don't know, just the way you move through your life since you came to that realization? You know, yes, I think... Sometimes I have a hard time answering this question just because so much of this coincides with the state of this country and also the world since the election, that it's sometimes hard to, it's a very strange experience to be so satisfied in your own life when you feel like you're living in a very, very dark time. And it's hard to, for all of us, I think, to understand to separate ourselves from the events that are going on around us like it just it feels to me overwhelming and so sometimes I have to sit back I I don't even have to remind myself I I I'm enjoying myself enormously is the truth and I'm very grateful to be enjoying myself enormously but I do think the challenge of 
where was I was at something the other day where they were talking about this joy of being joyful in a moment of real darkness is something we're we're all struggling with and it's very difficult for me to sort of isolate that down to my experience as a now 45 year old uh unmarried woman and from being just a person in America in 2019 who's trying to both stay sane and joyful and at the same time responsible and engaged so that it's I don't know how to keep those two things separate and it's hard for me to say how my decision making is there was I feel very confident in who I am and what I want or as confident as a person can when we're all sort of facing this sense of like will the world be a place we can recognize in 10 years so those things are and you know I don't think those two things are disconnected in the big picture I don't think the world we're living in right now is so connected to women having agency and financial independence for the first time really and even such a small group of women like in on the sort of world platform I represent still a very small group of women who have financial independence and the ability to you know more or less do what I want with my time and how I want it within the you know realms of reality but I don't think that that is disconnected from the country we're living in right this second either. Uh, so I do think it's a much more complicated answer than had, had Hillary won the election or the electoral college. And um, we would be having a, a much different discussion about how I feel that 45 is, whereas I think right now it's more like, how do you feel as a citizen? <laughs> Truly. Yeah, absolutely. I could not agree more. And, and it makes me wonder about, you know, this, I, you said something in an article and you were talking about dating in this context, but you said mm-hmm. something about not making decisions out of fear or shame that that mm-hmm. is going to become your overall life advice. And I'm mm-hmm. curious, given the, the, you know, what you just described, right? The, the time in which we're living right now, how do you think we can best do that and make decisions not out of fear and shame? I think the shame thing ties more clearly to being a woman. I think there's very little in women's lives that isn't in some way connected to us feeling ashamed. And that's like a business decision. We're, we feel ashamed of looking our age. We feel ashamed of gaining weight. We feel ashamed of how these pants fit on our body. Like I'm always struck by how men go into a store like J. Crew and find pieces of clothing that don't fit. And their immediate reaction is like, I'll go to a tailor. And women's reaction is like, there's something wrong with my body. <laughs> You know, like we're just conditioned to feel shame and pay to get rid of the shame. As far as fear, I mean, listen, we are recording this podcast as the impeachment hearings are happening um, in real time. And, you know, half the world is on fire, literally. So I think, I think you, you have to be brave and responsible and also know your limits and your boundaries. And boundaries for women, we're not encouraged to have them. You know, I, I still feel that often, even with the most well-meaning of friends who have kids, where there's this underlying sense of, you have so much free time, you know, like boundaries are tough. They're very tough for women. But I just think in terms of like how we're all operating in this country, you have to, how much can you absorb before you stop being as engaged and responsible a citizen as you can be? It's so difficult to have this conversation right now. Really, this the I think the coming it's not even a year. The coming eleven months are are so precarious and so loaded that 
uh, in some ways, the I feel like the responsibility is to the greater good more than ever. And what does that mean in all of our lives? Like, how do I take this sense of how powerful I feel, how much opportunity I have. I was just having a conversation with a friend the other day about traveling as a woman alone and how much I love it. And I'd found a super cheap ticket to Paris this winter. And I just went last week, it was $250 return. Like it was crazy. And at the same time, I'm on the plane being like, I'm killing the environment yes, right I know, now. Totally. <laughs> and there's just this like collision of women have only just reached a point where this is really a reality for us in the, in the like accessible way. And it's, it's colliding with, will we be able to get on planes? Am I being a responsible person by getting on a plane? That is a real struggle to be in, to, to have those two things head on. So totally, you're so know. right. I just even... everyone do your best and try not to be too scared is I don't know if that's like the yeah, most no. broad answer. I don't know what else to say. I think that's right. But it's so interesting to hear you. I ne- I have not really heard that articulated, but you're right about just this time for women colliding with this time when the world feels like it's falling apart. Yeah. Now, we've certainly had times in our history as humans where the world feels like it's falling apart and we somehow got through it. But it's like, it does. It, it, there's this layer of like heaviness is sort of, I guess, how it feels to me where, you know, it's like you can live your life and you can enjoy your life. And yet there's this. I think it's the environment. I think, you know, politically, it's terrible. Many people, I am a white woman in New York City who makes a livable wage, like, and has Canadian citizenship. Like I am as, I think I am as Bonus. privileged in all of those ways as it, as I can be, um, which is an, also an interesting position to occupy as a unmarried woman without children, because in that sense, being that woman for so long was the ultimate shame. So it, in this moment, all of those things sort of accrue power from it, you know, but the, the environment undergirding all of this in the sense of it's all happening so fast. I, I just, I, it's, it's, it's overwhelming. I, if you're listening to this and you feel overwhelmed, then you're definitely not alone. And, <laughs> and but I do think it's worth it, like worthwhile to really consider why we're in this position with the environment and politics, who is making these decisions that have led us here, which by and large are white men. And why are they so angry right now? And this is, I'm not saying anything that somebody hasn't said before, but like, I am living a life that women from my mother's generation could only have fantasized about even more recently, like my ability, my level of agency and my ability to operate in the world and feel good about myself and feel powerful is so new. And we are living in this moment of sort of this apocalyptic moment that has been brought about by the very people whom my existence feels threatening to. So there is a real, these things are very connected and I feel very aware of that as I go about my day. Yeah. Well, and I think our generation, yeah, it's like we, to your point, we really are the first who Mm -hmm. could live this way. I always remind people that like, you know, women couldn't even have their own credit card until like 1972 or some crazy thing. It's 1974. And I say that because I was born in 1974. So I'm very aware of like, I am the first, I am a member of the first generation of women who have had financial independence in a, in a general sense of it. Because of course there's always uh, examples of women 
wealthy women or, you know, the one-off here and there who, who managed to escape the, the rules. But we are part of a generation of women who across the board have had uh, far more access to it to make it a, a sort of a, a more common thing. And so yeah. Yeah. that we're aging into the moment where we can really exert this power, because I think 40s are such a powerful decade that it's coinciding with a president who goes to his rallies and chants locker up is not a coincidence. Yeah, 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 absolutely, absolutely. And it's just, it also feels, I mean, I don't think about this every day, but it does feel a little bit like a responsibility, the same responsibility that, you know, previous generations of women must have felt when they were, you know, getting the right to vote or all the things. Mm -hmm. Like, I feel like there's this, whether we want to be or not, we're kind of, we are the trailblazers in some Mm -hmm. respects. (laughs) For sure. I often think of, I I have come to, maybe this is what's changed in the last five years since, since my birthday and certainly since sort of writing about it and, and, and really digging into my thoughts on it is I feel a responsibility to the life I'm leading separate from feeling a responsibility to sort of myself as an individual. Like I feel a responsibility to the the opportunity I have to exist like this, to make the most of it because it's so new and I'm so fortunate, and I and I do feel like in this in this analogy is not perfect, but in the same way, like you have a responsibility to your family, or your children, or your offspring. Like I feel like my life as a as a, a new thing exists almost separate from me, and I have a responsibility to that to to really do my best with it. God, I mean, I hope I hope my niece and nephew or my niece is like, I hope girls that are 10 right now will get the same advantages and opportunities, but I'm not confident. And now a lot of that has to do with what will the environment look like, but a lot of it just has to do with like, I think Sheila Hetty in an interview and I'm paraphrasing here said something like, if you were an alien came to earth and you could see all of human history, would you think the progress women have made since the 1960s was the beginning of like long-term progress or would you think it's a blip and that we're about to return to normal? I think about that constantly. Like oh my was, gosh. were we just, are we part of like a half century blip before it all goes back to what it's always been? I don't know. Oh my gosh, Glenna. See, I can't even, no, but I can't even, I can't even entertain that as a thought. Like, um, I right. just, I'm sorry. I can't like, it's because... just, I think to have been raised in the 20th century was, uh, to have thought like, oh, you know, we've, we're that whole like late nineties thinking the end of history, but it was to think like, oh, we've escaped all of this terrible past and now we're in this new way of living. And I think if anything, the last, you know, few years has been a reminder, like, oh, we haven't escaped anything. Yeah. Right? It's Maybe slippery. it's going we to be to, worst. Well, and, we, and, and just for just the reminder that we can't just sit here, like we have to do something to protect what we have earned. I, and I think, you know, it's funny. I, there's a part of me that's hesitating to bring this up even because in some respects, people respond to the idea of self-care as frivolous, but I got to tell you something. Like, I think that now, especially for women who are sort of, you know, pushing forward in the environment that we're in right now, I don't think there's anything more important. And I'm curious to know what you think about that and how you, and I define self-care very broadly. Um, Like I'm not just, I mean, yes, food, exercise, all the things, whatever. But what does that mean to you? Like when you think about self-care in a time where you're almost like having to go to battle, Mm -hmm. like what does that mean in a context like that, do you think? Well, I think, first of all, anytime we talk about women doing something for themselves, we consider it frivolous. I mean, how much criticism has been devoted to 
women's memoirs. I mean, I went into Powell's in Portland when I was on book tour last year and all of the memoirs by women, including like Roxane Gay and Ari Levy and Cheryl Strayed were all in the women's section. And the memoirs like Carl of Nosgood, who I might be butchering his name, his memoirs, autofiction, whatever they were, are in the literature section. So even the way we shelve books, the way we talk about the personal essays and act of vanity, the way there was all of that, like the selfies are vain, but what we're really saying is that women are, are centering them and their experiences around themselves. And then that inevitably is frivolous and not valuable. So I think number one, anytime somebody makes you feel ashamed of what you're doing, really ask yourself who is a, the author of that criticism and, and, and what is motivating it. Cause self-care, you know, let's just look at what men have considered self-care for all of history. Uh, I think it's, a, it's a recognition and a respect of your place in the world and, uh, and an acknowledgement that you are valuable on your own, essentially, which is a very, it sounds simple, but when you really think of it, we do not, we don't like women on their own. We don't like them to eat alone. We don't like them to drive alone. We don't like them to travel alone. We don't like them alone. If you are alone, it's either because you're spoiled or because you've done something wrong. So I have very big picture thoughts about self-care and I think it iterates over time into different things. Uh, if we're talking like face masks, then I'm all for it. Any, <laughs> any time, like, I think anything you do that encourages you to just like consider yourself and how you're feeling and then attempt to make yourself feel better is a good thing and not something to feel bad about. I don't know, or feel like embarrassed about or critical about. What do you do these days to feel, you know, centered and like yourself or however you want to frame the end game for self-care? Try and stay off the internet, number one. Yeah, no kidding. I have been a skincare person. I was a competitive swimmer since I was 10. So skincare was sort of part of my routine since I was a kid to ward off the chlorine. So like exercise, all the normal things. I mean, I go to movies by myself. I take my, I go have dinner by myself all the time. I think alone time, I'm very good at um, booking myself on trips when I need it or knowing, I think real true self-care is knowing when to say yes and when to say no, actually. And that can be applied to everything. When to say yes to people, when to say no to people, when to say yes to experiences, when to say no. Like that's, that's real, self-care is really self-knowledge in so many ways, I think. And also I have a bath all the time, which again is bad for the environment, but that is my real concession <laughs> towards like. I like it. Yeah, bath, no. bath. Bath with um, coconut oil and like Epsom salts. Nice. And massages, I don't know, like. Well, no, it's well, all like, those things. Think, no, I'm just thinking in my head. I'm like, congratulations to all of us for surviving this year um, in this country, <laughs> in this planet. Like, I eat too much chocolate, and dinner with friends, I think, is really. I just when I was in Paris this last time, I actually went with a friend of mine, which is not the the, the number of people I will travel with is so diminished now because I really do enjoy traveling by myself, and I think that's true of a lot of women when you get older you have your real like are you worthy of my right, <laughs> right. Side episode are you sponge worthy I'm like are you trip worthy <laughs> uh but a friend of mine came along a very close friend of mine who has been married for I don't know 12 or 15 years and she we were facetiming with her husband and he said are you having a good time she's like yeah Paris is lovely but it's really just lovely to talk to women 
I just thought as that was such a wonderful insight for me because I'm always, I'm surrounded by, I have so many friends and I'm constantly in all these conversations um, to be like, oh, I suppose if I was, if my main conversations were with my husband and children because she's small children, like this would feel like such a gift. And that's a good reminder, like community, communion. Yeah, totally. I love it. Actually, speaking of eating alone, it's one of the things that I miss most about living in New York is not that you can't do it here, but it's Seattle. It's not the same thing in Seattle or or anywhere as far as I'm concerned. So I have to ask you, where should I eat out by myself next time I'm in New York? So it's so funny. I think New York is definitely sort of the Mecca of eating alone. Like, mm-hmm. but I definitely, because I do travel a lot. There's plenty of places where I eat alone and, and it doesn't flag anything to anyone, but Seattle is not one of those places. Seattle no, is, it's not. Yeah. <laughs> Which is interesting because Seattle is such um, like a successful city, but yeah, Seattle, I had women there really, that was my first insight into the fact that not all women are comfortable eating alone. I still do it because I'm a New Yorker. I mean, you live in New York for 13 years. Like you, I'm just, it's just what I do, but yeah, it's not the same. Eating alone is like the great gift of life and having your own bank account. Like I just, (laughs) that's how I reward myself. I eat everywhere. I don't, there's my favorite sushi (laughs) place. Uh, is Habino in Brooklyn Heights. Okay. Okay. And I'm such a regular there that they save the staff tote bag for me. (laughs) It's very, you've really made it to the inner circle of my life if I bring you there because I just, I'm like, I love it so much. I'm like, oh God, don't be a jerk if I bring you, (laughs) if I bring you here. I think the question is like, but I eat alone in LA. Nobody blinks an eye. I think funnily enough, I spent a lot of time in Wyoming. No one, no one ever thinks twice about anyone alone in Wyoming. because There's so few people there. There's exactly, (laughs) there aren't that many of them. Nobody really thinks twice about it in Montreal or Toronto. Um, although where was I recently? Oh, I went out to Palm Springs. I was in Joshua tree. I just know I walked into a bar after a long drive out there to go to a wedding and I sat at the bar and said, can I get a menu? And they automatically brought two over. And I thought, well, oh, there we go. <laughs> there, Yeah, there it is right there. <laughs> I was just totally. like, I wasn't offended by it. It was more like, there's no one else coming. I'm so hungry. I need to order immediately. <laughs> I think again, just going back to, I'm trying to think what has changed in the last five years. I think leading up to my 40th birthday, stuff like that might have been like it might've caused me a moment of pause or like a defensiveness. And I, I don't think twice about any of it now. I, I doesn't, my life never occurs to me uh, to be something that I should feel bad about or apologize for. Like it doesn't even, it's not even that like I have to think like that. It does literally doesn't cross my mind. It doesn't occur to me that what I'm doing is, should be something I have to defend or feel weird about. I, I quite literally don't think about it anymore. It hasn't, that's you know, the, that's the advantage yeah. of writing a book. I suppose I got it all out. Right. Well, it's also <laughs> one of the gifts of being in your forties, right? I yeah. Mean, that's, that's your forties are awesome. I mean, you know, I always remember Oprah saying that when she turned 40, like there's no shortage of women ahead of us who've said being in your forties is great. Or when I would backpack as a, in my twenties and I'd see like, we've all seen groups of older women, like in their fifties or sixties who look really happy, but you couldn't really figure out why. <laughs> And I really, so I really think like part of writing the book was that I didn't just want it to be a slogan like, oh, 40 and fabulous or your 40s really are great. I wanted to be like, your 40s are amazing and difficult, but like they are fantastic. I want this decade to be as slow as possible and not just because the environment is ending. (laughs) No, just because the world is ending. Yeah. Just because of the apocalypse. (laughs) Totally hear you. Oh my gosh. I feel like we could talk forever. I, I do want to make sure though, that if people want to learn more about you and your work, where, where should they go to do that? 
God, I'm so out of shape at answering this question. Uh, <laughs> the book is No One Tells You This, and it can be ordered at your local bookstore or at any independent bookstore online, or if you're very desperate at the evil giant website that I try and avoid at all costs. And my website is glassmcnichol.com. I wrote a small book about baking this year, which is a fun You did not. I, oh my gosh. I don't know about I mean, that. I can't do, I can't bake anything, but I did write a book about <laughs> but it. But you wrote a book about it anyway. Wait, wait, I have to hear about this. Like I, we, we could, uh, whatever, it's, maybe I'll, Part of a series, just briefly, it's part of a series Simon and Schuster put out uh, called Masters at Work. And the idea is you profile someone at the height of their profession as a way to explain their profession. And for a variety of reasons, I started out doing a different topic. We couldn't make it work. And so I made a left turn. I've been going to a bakery in New York for 25 years. And so I, I turned it into a book about both baking and this bakery. But the the funny part is, is I literally, I think I wrote somewhere in my 20s, I used my oven for storage. And that I like, I literally haven't opened an oven in since then so well in new york apartments that's what one does i mean you know where yeah. else are you gonna put your uh, that's what i did you know anyway um thank you so much glennis this was like this was so fun i i just um yeah i really appreciate your time Thanks for listening to this week's winter break episode. Now would be a great time to catch up on She Knows the Way episodes you might have missed. There are over 100 in the archive. We'll be back in the spring with more new episodes and inspiration for your journey to what's next for you. In the meantime, don't forget to reach out to me at hello at lauradolch.com if you'd like the She Knows the Way team to produce a podcast for your organization. Again, we're especially interested in working with mission-driven, not just-for-profit organizations that support the social progress of women. Finally, if you have a friend, family member, or coworker who sometimes feels ashamed or worse, selfish, for not wanting kids, loving her single life, or simply making life choices that aren't culturally expected for women, please send this episode her way. This episode of She Knows the Way was originally produced by me, Lara Dolch, with editing help from Lens Group Media. It was edited for re-release by Jennifer McCord. For more episodes, hit subscribe or follow wherever you're listening right now. And if you'd like to stay in touch, I'm at Lara Dolch on Instagram and Twitter. You can also sign up for our newsletter at lauradolch.com slash podcast or by clicking the link in the episode notes. Until next time, Trust that you know the way.